following message was given by Demetrius White on Sunday, August 7th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you would be so kind to turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, we'll read in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. As I read, I'd like you to follow along with me in Genesis 15, 50, 15 through 21. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Listen to this. Thus. He comforted them and spoke, what? Kindly to them. We're not accustomed here at Redemption Hill to give titles to messages. When I was a young man, the pastor had a title for every message. Even if he preached and he didn't get the point, he had a title for the message. So I'm going to break custom here and give a title to this message. I will title this message, The Exaltation of Joseph, and Why It Matters. The Exaltation of Joseph, and Why It Matters. You know, reading a text like this oftentimes leaves you confused and bewildered. I remember growing up as a kid in the church hearing my pastor read a text like this. I would ask this question. Now, I wouldn't say it loud because my mom would smack me upside my head, but I would say it internally. What is the meaning and purpose of it all? This story is so far removed from us. It's removed from our culture. It's removed from our ideologies, our norms. It's archaic, and it's set in a time long past. Therefore, we not only ask, what does it mean, but what does it have to do with us? Well, here is my short answer this morning, and it's probably going to be unhelpful, but here's my short answer. It has everything to do with us. These stories highlight the providential move of God through history. A passage like this teaches us not only about the nature and character of God, but they stress how he saves sinners. These stories highlight God's redemptive purposes on behalf of his people. Therefore, the story before us does have everything to do with us. Because it points forward to the beauty and power of the gospel, which is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Our passage this morning brings us to the conclusion of Genesis. We meet Joseph and his family as they settle in Egypt. At the end of Genesis, we come to gaze upon Joseph in his exaltation. Joseph is the favorite child. He is the apple of his father's eye, Jacob. He is the beloved son. He had a dream one day that his family would bow down to him and that someday he would be exalted. His brothers hated him because he was the beloved son of their father. They were jealous of Joseph. His brothers eventually had enough of Joseph and decided the best thing for them would be the death of Joseph. As Joseph approached his brothers, those he trusted conjured up a sinister plan to murder Joseph. In Genesis 37 verse 18, it says that they saw him from afar and conspired to kill him and to throw him into one of the pits. But as Reuben contemplated this heinous act that they were about to commit, Reuben rebuked the notion and said, no, do not kill him. Let us sell him to these Ishmaelites that are passing by. And poor Joseph, who was the beloved son, was only worth 20 pieces of silver to his brothers, and they sold him. Here Joseph enters into his humiliation. Joseph suffers, and he suffers tremendously. He is falsely accused by his master's wife. He is thrown into prison. Joseph is reduced, demoted, despised, rejected by men. His downward spiral is shocking. It is fast. He is digressed from the position of a beloved son to a slave all the way down to being the scum of Egyptian society. A cursed prisoner locked away from all eyes and society. In time, two fellow prisoners have dreams. One had a favorable outcome in his dream. So Joseph asked him, he said, when you come before Pharaoh, please remember me and tell him about my plight. Please, brother, remember me. However, in God's good providence, in this frowning providence that Jake just prayed about, God works, which seems to be as if he's not working, but he's working. And for a time in God's good providence, Joseph is forgotten. How would you have felt during this time? I know how I would have felt. I would have been crying, kicking, screaming, snot flying. I would have been questioning God. Why? Why this suffering? Why this pain? Why this agony? But here in the narrative, Joseph does not lift up his voice against God. He suffers, and he suffers patiently. He did no wrong. There was no guilt assigned to Joseph. Joseph Joseph does not charge God with injustice. He simply toils through his humiliation and suffering. In time, Joseph is exalted. He is remembered. He interprets 
Pharaoh's dream about the impending drought on the horizon and is made the governor of Egypt. Joseph becomes overnight one of the most powerful men in the world, vested with the very authority of Pharaoh himself. He is not only exalted, but guess who else is exalted alongside of him? His precious family. His beloved brothers, his family, they are restored to him. And Joseph is used to preserve his family through one of the most pressing droughts to plague the region. Joseph is sent ahead of his family by the wisdom and providence of God to be exalted. Listen, not for himself alone, but for his family. This is what Genesis 50 15 through 21 is trying to relate to us. It is trying to relate to us the beauty and majesty of the greater Joseph. That you must come to see and rest in Christ. Because what Joseph did is small stuff compared to what the greater Joseph has done for you and me. We'll see several things in our passage this morning. Number one, we will see the position of sinners. We will see the position, the disposition of sinners. We see it in Joseph's brothers, their position with him, their disposition, their idea of who Joseph was in light of their sin. Verse 15, then we will see a gracious disposition towards sinners. As we look at Joseph and how he deals with his brothers. In verses 16 through 19. And then we will see a sufficient provision for sinners in verses 20 through 21. Let's just look at our first point. The position of a sinner in verses, verse 15. Dad's dead. He's gone. Notice what they say in verse 15. Maybe Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. After the death of Jacob, they are keenly aware of their positions as sinners. They had betrayed their brother, and because of this betrayal, they stood before Joseph as guilty sinners. If, 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 I were, if we were in this situation, I'm pretty sure that we would feel the same way. Things have changed. For Joseph's brothers, the most monumental change that had happened to them was the death of their father, Jacob. I wonder what thoughts traveled through their minds. Maybe they thought, you know, Joseph will cast us out. He, he will kill us. He, he will make us slaves. What if he leaves us to our own devices, to the ravishes of this coming drought? They felt the impending doom of their demise on the horizon. They wrestled. And man, did they wrestle with their sinfulness. This teaches us several valuable lessons about sin. It always brings condemnation. Sin brings guilt because sin is a transgression of God's law. Well, Demetrius, I see nothing of God's law in this passage. You are, you are severely wrong, Demetrius. Nothing but God's law. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. There's nothing of God's law in this passage to which I would say that the letter of the law had not manifested, but the spirit of the law was in full effect. Romans 2.15 says the law is written upon the human heart. 
Someone came to me one day and talked about the code of Hammurabi, that it was written before Moses' books. Therefore, Moses copied the, 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 the code of Hammurabi, the moral code. You know what I said to them? Well, if God is eternal and his word is eternal, God's moral law always existed. So Moses and Hammurabi are saying the same. That's why they sound the same. The law is written on the hearts. And because of Joseph's brothers, they, because of their transgression of God's law, the law breathed to them. It threatened them. It says, you don't truly love God. And because you don't truly love God, you did not love your neighbor. Look at what you have done to your brother. You are guilty, the law said to them. Listen, sin will always weigh you down. I pray that you would remember that in temptation. Sin makes us groveling slaves instead of free men rooted in Christ. That's all it does. Several months ago, I was talking to a good friend of mine. I know him to be a, a, a good standing man, a Christian man, church going man, Bible reading man. He and I talk, or have read some of the same books. But he came to me. And he said, Demetrius. And I mean, he, he, he had that face too. You know that face we make when we, when we do something wrong, that long face. And he comes to me and says, Demetrius. You know, we're sitting down over lunch. Man, I'm, I, I'm struggling with my sin. I just can't defeat this thing. I mean, he was making this thing seem like a werewolf or Jason Voorhees. And I'm not, I'm not putting it down that he wasn't struggling. He was struggling. And he went on and 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 on about his sin. And you know what I did? I said, stop. Just stop it. And he was startled. Now, let me tell you something. If you come to me for counseling, I'm a one-trick pony. I only have one, one gear. I have a gospel gear. I'm going to tell you that right now. You're going to get the gospel. If you don't go to Mount Zion, I can take you to Mount, uh, I can take you to Mount Sinai. And if you get afraid at Mount Sinai, I'm going to take you back to the gospel. Huh? That's all I'm going to do to you. I'm going to take you to Mount Zion. I'm going to show you Christ. And if you think you're self-righteous, I'm going to take you to Mount Sinai. I'm going to scare you a little bit. And then we're going to go back to Mount Zion. And you're going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. One way or another, you're going to get this thing. I said, sir, do you know what you're doing? Do you know who you are? I, I, I don't know. I, Demetrius, what are you saying? You're speaking in riddles. Do you know what you're doing? You are a Hebrews 12.1 Christian. That's who you are. You're the man who looks at that verse and says, you know what? I need to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily beset. That is a true statement. But I said, sir, you have failed to read the rest of the chapter. Huh? You have failed to read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that says to lay aside your besetting sins. How? By looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So, sir, I'm afraid to tell you, you will never put to death your sin. Because you're too occupied with yourself and you're not occupied with the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. 
And that is your issue. That is most of our, that is our issue. Those of us sitting in this church, that's our issue when we battle with sin. We don't really trust the gospel. You know what we really trust? We trust what we can do. That's what we trust. We don't really believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Just stick your feet out there in the floor. I'm going to stomp on them a little bit. Listen, when you're guilty, what do you look for for comfort? What do you look to as your only comfort in life or in death, as the great Heidelberg Catechism says? First point, is it Jesus? Is it that thing you do? Huh? Is it that 12-step program that you're, that you're a part of? Or is it Jesus? Is he enough? I'm afraid to say that for most of us, Jesus isn't enough. And he is the one who deals with sin thoroughly. Not your software or your 12-step program. Jesus does. What do you look to? Joseph's brothers toiling under the weight of their sin. Their brother had already forgiven them. They had been in the presence of Joseph. They had already lived with Joseph for some time. They experienced the compassion of Joseph. He revealed himself to, to them earlier. He wept over them. He kissed them. He hugged them. He fed, with, he fed them. He ate with them. But instead of looking to what Joseph had done, how he had freely accepted them, they focused on themselves. Man, are we like these guys? I tell you. I talk to my sons about this stuff, my kids about how to interpret the Bible. We, we are the negative characters in the text. We really are. We're just like these people. I always say this when I preach. When I used to read the Bible years ago, I used to tell my grandfather, hey, man, these people are awful. And my grandfather said, you're not getting it. And then years later, I'm, like, I'm just like these guys. I'm a mess. Man, do I need Jesus. I can't keep his law. I can't, even, I can't keep any of them. His brothers toil. This is the sinister nature of sin. It clouds the mind. It condemns the heart. It puts a mask upon the face of God and turns him into a monster. Joseph was exalted. He loved his brothers. He was exalted for his family. Dear friends, Jesus, like Joseph, was exalted, but in greater proportions for you. You know, here comes Jesus out of this tomb. I don't know. We, we have to play it back in heaven. We have to get one of those Blu-ray screens. Or something. It's probably going to be something dynamic in the new heavens and new earth. But we'll see. You know, Jesus comes out. He whisks away this, this, this stone and he walks out. He meets with his disciples for a time. And I, can only, I could see it in my mind's eye. This guy going up from Mount Olive. And, and he's going up in the sky. He walks in. Who is this king of glory? 
they cry in heaven. He walks in. He walks up to the throne and he sits down far above all principality, power, might. Every name that has ever been named in this age and in the age to come. Jesus, highly exalted. And he sits down. But you know why he sits down? He doesn't sit down just for himself. Yes, for his glory, but for the joy of his people. He sits down, Hebrews 1.3, to show you that his work was so sufficient for you on the cross and in his living that he has purged you of all of your sins. Past, present, and future. It is done. That's why he's seated. You thought he was seated there for his health. But Jesus has even a purpose for him being seated on a throne. To show you that your sins, whatever they are, wherever they are, whatever you think of them, are no match for the unrivaled sovereign named Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus has purged you of your sins. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you really believe this message, you will live in a different grace, in a different power, in greater joy than you could ever imagine. One of my sons asked me one day, "Dad, how do you how do you live in this freedom. I said, I can't. But he has already freed me. And I place my faith in what he has done for me. And it gives me the power to live in a sanctified life. You see, sin blinds us from the proper means used to cleanse us from its guilt and its power. Verse 15 we not only see the guilt of Joseph's brothers, but the source and means used by them to maintain peace between them and Joseph. You see, up until this time, these guys are living okay with Joseph. They're eating with Joseph. They're going over to the house. You know, they're watching the football game every now and then. You know, Joseph's my brother. You know, we're watching the football game here. You know, the, the Sphinxes versus the whatever, you know, whatever. So, you know, we watch. We're chilling. We're eating buffalo wings and stuff. But when daddy died, uh-oh. <laughs> God a corner said, Daddy's dead. Oh, hold up. Hey, Reuben, Daddy's dead. Judah, Daddy's dead, man. Joseph, do you see Joseph? You see what he wears? That guy's wearing Versace, man. Huh? That guy got a Saint Laurent hat. That guy is, is to, to the T. That guy's got a multi-million dollar bank account. He's got the military at his disposal, this Joseph. Do you think that he's going to have compassion on us? Dad is dead. Huh? Listen. Up until this point, they were fine. Joseph had forgiven them. He had taken them in. But when the, their dad died, once again, their hopes of peace between themselves and Joseph died along with Jacob. Aren't we like this? Aren't we like this? 
You get this thing, get this 12-step program. You get this software, you get this, you go to this guy or this woman, whoever it is. Good things, but they're not God things. They can't do for you what Christ can do. And when that thing fails you, you know what you say? We got to come up with some other means to make ourselves right with God. All of this stalling you're doing is just simply a manifestation of you trying to make yourself right before a holy God. It's deep down in the crevices of your psyche. You're trying. You, you don't even know. You, I, I got to make myself right with God. I got to do this program here. If I don't do this, I will never be made right. Listen. Instead of resting in the forgiving grace already given to them by Joseph, his brothers, his brothers left one means only to take up another. Notice in verse 16 here, it says, so they sent a message to Joseph. They, they, the, Daddy's dead, so now we've got to do something else. Daddy's dead, now we've got to get another program going. Now we've got to do something else to make ourselves right. here. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive them of their transgressions. They still are working. Man, I don't, I, 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 this guy Joseph, I probably would have just kicked him out. This is ridiculous, man. I've forgiven these guys, and they are still toiling. They go to work to establish their own righteousness. What do you do in light of your own sin? You know, you sin, okay, you look at yourself in the mirror, I got to double my efforts now. Huh? I got to get the, you know, I got to get the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. I'm doing CBR, but I find that to be too, it's just too little, right? I got to get the Robert Murray McShane, the four verses a day reading through the Bible. Huh? I got to double my efforts, man. I got to cut off and pluck out. I got to, I got to cut this thing. I got to cut this person. I got to double my efforts. You know what you're doing? I said it before. You're taking a good thing. And making it a God thing. Most of the time. We sin. Most of the time. We think nothing of Christ. As a solution to our sin. Most of the time. I'm sitting across from someone. In a counseling session. They say nothing of the gospel. As a remedy to their sin. And it is tragic. God does use means to accomplish his ends. There's nothing wrong with your program. There's nothing wrong with your software. But to really get to the root of that thing that is in your heart, that is festering away in there, that is eating you alive, the only thing that can save you is Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. Maybe you're not doubling your efforts for yourself. Maybe it's somebody else. You're saying this person has to double their effort. This person's a sinful person. This person sinned against me. I'm going to hold them accountable. They need to make an atonement to me in order to be, to be cleansed from their sin and their guilt. Huh? You know, Sister Johnson, she comes to church 10 years ago. Brother Jackson offended her. And she walks around like she's eating lemons all the time. Upset, mad with the world. 
And in order for you to appease her anger, you have to do X, Y, Z. But let me give you God's way of salvation to all of the Sister Johnsons in the church. Let me give you God's proper means of salvation for the person you're holding guilty. Let me give it to you here. Who are you to condemn? It is Christ who died. Romans 8, 34. Instead of looking and resting in the personal work of their brother Joseph, they rested in Jacob. After Jacob passed, they established their own means of righteousness. And we are in danger of the same thing. I was talking to my kids. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, we don't sit around the house reading uh, Thomas Watson and the Puritans all day. We just don't do that. We, you know, contrary to popular belief, I like, I like to be left alone a lot of times. I want to watch the football game. You see what I'm saying? You dig? I want to watch the football game. I want to watch the Dallas Cowboys. Don't, don't hate on me for that. I want to watch the Raymond. Come on now. I want to watch the Cowboys, you know. I want to see it all that glory. But let me get back. My kids come to me from time to time. This is how we go through or how I go through discipling my kids. Come to me. They ask a question. And one of them said, how do you go from this position of being enslaved to sin? Being under the weight and toil of your guilt. How do you go from, Daddy, how do you go from being free to that, from that kind of thing? What, what does that look like? Okay, good question. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you're in a building. This building is on fire, man. You're talking about multiple alarm fire here. You can't get out. You don't have any power to get out. The building's crumbling. All of a sudden, you see in the shadows this 6'5", 275-pound man of muscle come through there, looking like a Terminator. He looks alien because he has on his firefighter gear. He picks you, I mean, he just grabs you, picks you up, puts you on his shoulder by his own power and might, by his own will, by his own working puts you on his shoulder, walks you outside, sets you on the ground, makes sure you're all right. He walks past you just a few yards away, and you hear him say, man, I'm thirsty. What would you do? One of them said, I would give him something to drink. Why? That man just saved my life! <laughs> This is how you go from glory to glory. You go from glory to glory by seeing the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. Not simply by adding law and works to your regimen. It's by seeing Jesus. What does 2 Corinthians 3.16 say? It says that we are transformed as we what? We gaze upon Jesus Christ from glory to glory. To glory. So you thought you were transformed, being transformed by something else. Huh? But you're transformed by seeing Jesus 
and going from glory to glory. This is why I come to church every Sunday. This is why I read the Bible. Not because I'm trying to keep a law. Not because I'm trying to outdo someone. This is why I read the way I read. Because I want to see Jesus Christ. I know that when I see Jesus, man, I'm really going to change. That sin that plagued me 10 years ago, it's going to meet a harsh death when I see Jesus, man. You know, one of my favorite pastors, outside of the guys here at Redemption Hill, one of my favorite pastors said he went to a conference and he picked up Sinclair Ferguson. And Sinclair Ferguson says to him, after they had a long talk about what they have read, he says, well, have you read Owen? And my guy says to him, yeah, I, you know, I, I read all, and you know what he says? He says, I've read the mortification of sin. And Sinclair Ferguson rears back, and he says, have you not read the glory of Christ? He says, you should have read that one first before you even have gotten to the mortification of sin. You see, this is why Paul, in the beginning of Romans, he does not even give you the imperative to mortify or put to death your sin. Huh? Until he shows you the glory of Christ. And even that, you do it through the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He comes into your life. He glorifies Christ. He exalts Christ. He shows the majesty of Christ. He shows the work of Christ. And he constantly is showing you this to the point that you no longer have the desire for sin that you used to have. That's how he does it. That's how the Holy Spirit changes you. And you thought, man, I don't feel like going to church today. Huh? This is a means that God uses to sanctify you by hearing his word. This is how he frees us from sin. Listen, as the old divine Richard Sibb says once, he says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Do you really believe that? Huh? If you really believe that, you would be more gracious to yourself. You would be more gracious to others toiling with sin. Huh? There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Notice this great mercy is seen in verses 16 through 19 that speaks of Joseph's gracious disposition. Notice 16 through 19. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Notice here, <clears throat> Joseph and, and, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. I am in the place of God. Joseph's brothers wrestling with their guilt. His brothers toiling to make themselves right with Joseph. This statement here that, hey, your father says, what does he say? Your father says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. This statement here is nowhere to be found in the Genesis narrative. The conversation that the brothers report about their father is not recorded in Scripture, except here. Moses does not give us any clues 
that this in fact happened between Joseph's brothers and Jacob. This conversation. But you know what they're doing? They're working. They're toiling to fix themselves. This is a manifestation of our doubt. I'm going to keep drilling this home. This is a manifestation of our doubt in the power of the gospel. We really don't believe the gospel like we say we do. We really don't. They fell down before Joseph and they did not say, notice, I want you to notice in the text, they did not say, Joseph, listen, man, we, <laughs> we're your brothers, man. We watched, we watched the, you know, the Egyptian football league with you. Huh? We ate wings with you, man. We're your brothers. They didn't say, hey, no, they didn't say, we're your brothers. Notice what they, what they say to Joseph. They come to Joseph and they say, we are your servants, Joseph. The brothers of Joseph have reduced themselves down to, to just scum, servants. That's all we are to you, Joseph. Man, we sin again. We, we're just servants. We, we have to grovel. You have to, we're just your servants. But look at Joseph. Look at Joseph. This sovereign in all of his glory. The power of Egypt, the wealth of Egypt, the military might of Egypt. At his disposal, at any moment, he could conjure up his wrath and exile his brothers to face the drought alone. He could have killed them. But look at the gracious attitude that he has towards his brothers. He looks at them. Verse 17, he looks at them. I don't know if it's in disbelief or shock. If he is offended, but in verse 17, it says that Joseph just looks at them and he weeps. I probably would have been disgusted. Man, what? What? I've forgiven you, man. What are you doing? But he looks at them and he weeps. And out of the wellspring of love that is in Joseph's heart, he picks up his head and he says these gracious comforting words. Look, let, let, let's look at Joseph's disposition towards these sinful men. He looks at them. He lifts up his head and he says, do not be afraid. Why, Joseph? Verse 19, I am in the place of God. With all of their sin, all of their shortcomings, all of their wickedness, the sovereign says, the most unthinkable thing. You would think Joseph would say off with their heads. But he says the most audacious thing that a man in his position could say. I am in the place of God. If I were to ask you, what do you think Jesus thinks about you this morning? Huh? How do you think Jesus feels about you? We're not talking about the president of the United States here. We're not talking about Vladimir Putin. We're talking about the potentate of the universe and beyond. Who created everything ex nihilo out of nothing. We're talking about the head honcho. How does he feel about you? 
Well, maybe you begin to uh, say to yourselves, you're answering my question. You're, you're relating to yourselves. You're defining yourself by your sin like Joseph's brothers have defined themselves. You know, we're, we're, we're just servants. We're just peons. We're, we're groveling servants. That's who we are. Ten years ago, I did this. Five years ago, I did this. Yesterday, I did this. Sitting in this service, I thought this. But the question isn't, what do you think about yourself? The question is, what does Jesus think about you at this very moment? Well, I have good news for you. <laughs> you know, as I was preparing this sermon, the Lord spoke to me. Just like, you know, Raymond sitting there. Just like we were face to face. And God didn't whisper to me either. It wasn't a still, small voice. I heard him just like Raymond and I were talking as friends. In Hebrews 2.11. See, y'all thought I was going to go chandelier swinging. That's what y'all thought. Uh-oh, Pastor D done lost it. He's talking about God speaking to him now. And you know, the Lord said, no, I'm not going chandelier swinging. The word of God is sufficient for me, you see. The word of God is it for me. If it's not the word of God, I'm not taking it. He spoke to me from Hebrews 2.11. This is how Jesus thinks about you. And you can be sure, because it's God's word, that this is how he thinks about you right now. And all of your nastiness, your sinfulness, your falls, your disappointments, this is how Jesus thinks about you. Listen, for he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source, one source for salvation. And this is why he is not ashamed to call you his brothers. What did you think? What was going through your head when I asked you that question? Oh, well, you know, two months ago, <laughs> I felt big time. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. You know why? Because your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what he did in his life and in his death and in his exaltation right now. Jesus will work to sanctify you. He may discipline you. He may bring you to the word to cleanse you. But rest assured, Jesus Christ will have a holy people if he has saved you. Jesus is not ashamed because he took your sins. He is your righteousness. There is no need for you to be guilty or to toil on it. There are no demands placed upon you to make yourself right before Jesus Christ. Well, Demetrius, this is just too good to be true. I know it's too good to be true. It's called the gospel. That's why it's too good to be true. But it is true. Jesus really did die for your sins. And he really is alive to sanctify you from your sins. And you must rest in him to receive from him. Here's our last point. We see a sufficient provision for sinners in verses 20 through 21. Just as Joseph was sufficient to preserve his family from the coming drought, Jesus 
is faithful to preserve his family from the wrath to come. Joseph speaks to his brothers about God's providential work to provide. Notice here in verse 20, he says, As for you, you brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is saying that his suffer, suffering was not for himself, but for the salvation of the family. His suffering was intended to bring about the salvation of many lives. Joseph's exaltation was a testimony to his brothers that he had the power to save them and preserve them from what was coming upon the region at that time. Seven years of drought. See, what Joseph's brothers failed to realize, and we fail to realize this oftentimes, we fail to realize that our lives are bound up with the very life of our Savior. They failed to see that their lives were bound up with the life of Joseph. Right? Our lives are bound up with the life of Jesus, his person and work. What does Romans 5.18 says? It says, through the obedience of one man, many will be made what? Righteous. Didn't say through the obedience of Demetrius White, he's going to be made. Man, I don't have any hope if it's through the obedience of Demetrius White. If you're depending on me and I'm depending on myself, you are, will be plunged into hell. Through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, that you are made righteous. Joseph went from this exalted position of the favored son of Jacob to a prisoner by the providential hand of God to become the governor of Egypt. Jesus suffered by the providential hand of God to become the emperor of the universe and beyond for the salvation of many lives. Acts 2.23, Jesus by the, uh, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God did all of this for you. Christ suffered not for himself, but for you. Acts 2.38 defines why the providential hand was upon Jesus. It was upon him so that you would receive the forgiveness of sins. Consider Jesus who for all of eternity rested in the bosom of the Father, the favorite son of the Father. He came into the world, humbled himself, became a servant, Philippians 2.7. Born under the law, he was appointed by the Father from the foundation of the world to die for your sin. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8. For 33 years, 33 years he lived a perfect life, not for himself, but for you. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it internally and externally. Like Joseph, who was sold for 20 pieces of silver, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph handed over to the Egyptians to suffer. Jesus handed over to the Romans to suffer. He was wounded for our transgressions and for our iniquities. Hanging on the cross, Jesus toiled under the weight of your sin by the immeasurable wrath of God. He was cursed of God to such an extent that he was forsaken by God for you. Like Joseph, he was imprisoned 
They took his body off of that cross and they locked him in to a tomb with a Roman guard, a legion of about 5,000 to 3,000 men so that he would not come out. But in three days, he got up. That 3,000, 5,000 men, nothing for him. He walked out of there. And what did Jesus say? I have all power in heaven and in earth. He goes up to the throne. He walks in. He is exalted. And as 1 Peter 3.22 says, he, Jesus being exalted, having all of the principalities and powers, dominion and might, being made subject to him. But it was for you. Jesus right now is seated in heaven for you. Hebrews 9.24 says he's seated at the right hand of God for you. Read it. I'm not making it up. He's seated at the right hand of God for you. He's done the work. It is finished. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. You see, in Genesis, in, in Genesis 50, 22 through 26, Joseph dies. His family goes into slavery. They have to be rescued all over again. Our story is greater than Joseph's story. We have a greater Joseph, a greater deliverer, a greater preserver in Jesus Christ. Because he died and now he forever lives to make intercession for us. And you will never be imprisoned again. Jesus died to bring you freedom. I want to close with this. One of my favorite preachers in Christian history is, is probably Thomas Goodwin. And, and one of the greatest books that he ever wrote was called The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners. Goodwin gives us this reason as to why he wrote this book. He says this. I wrote this book to lay open the heart of Christ as now he is in heaven, sitting at the right hand, interceding for us to show you how his heart is affected and graciously disposed towards sinners on earth that do come to him. I like that. That do come. See, we, we want to run away from Christ when we sin. It's disposed to those who do come to him. And how willing he is to receive you. How ready to entertain sinners he is. How tender to pity them in all of their infirmities. Both sins and miseries. For those of you that are struggling under hardships. He's tender. You can come to him. Goodwin goes on to say, I wrote this book to encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace, 
unto such a Savior and high priest. It is in seeing how sweetly and tenderly his heart is towards sinners that they will come willingly to him to receive grace. Do you believe Jesus Christ is like that? If you think something different, you don't know the gospel. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus really does love you. The Father really does love you. I said this in the last service. And I told Raymond, I said, that verse in John 17, where Jesus says, hey, Father, love them like you've loved me. Or in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, I mean, Jesus, the glorified one, the exalted one. He says, you're going to sit on the throne with me. If Jesus didn't say that, it, I would say it's blasphemy. But he really does love you that much. I'm telling you this because I want you to rest. I want you to not do something. I want you to believe something. That Jesus really did die for your sins. I'm going to close. I'm like Paul. I'm closing. I'm closing. I'm closing. But then I don't close. But in Romans 6, read it when you get home. Paul doesn't give you a 12-step program. Many of you would have been discouraged by Paul's counseling methods. He would have been, this guy is not a good counselor. But then a few months into it, you'll find out, man, wow, wow this, thing, this, this thing over here. I'm still tempted, but it doesn't have any fangs anymore. What happened? Paul's gospel is what happened. You notice in Romans 6, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you five steps to do this, ten steps to do that, four steps to do this, and then you'll have your sins mortified. You know what he says? Reckon yourselves dead to sin. How can you who have died to sin live therein any longer? Hold up, Paul. I need you to give me some steps here. You're dead to sin. Jesus propitiated wrath of God for you. He dealt with your sin, but I need steps. You're dead to sin. He wants you to believe something, not necessarily do something. Because if you believe something, you will do something. You got the cart before the horse. You want to do something, then believe something. But you must believe something, then you will do something. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you for your word. We pray that the truth of your word would be impressed upon our hearts. We pray that this message would ring in our hearts throughout the week as we meditate upon it and that we would grow and that the power of the gospel would free us from our guilt, condemnation, and the power of sin, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Demetrius White given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www dot redemptionhill dot com